0: This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
3: Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Who would have thought it's 2023? I know, I, I'm still writing 2022 on my checks. It feels like 2022. It, it really does. I mean, nowhere's I accepting my checks that's because, anymore because it's you yeah, know, they've not yeah. really done that since the
4: 90s. Yeah, that's because it is 2022. It is, we, yeah. uh, we, we're time
3: travelling here. Yeah,
4: we're, we're sort of recording this intro. Because it's like coming out on January the second, we just wanted to get it in the can, as they say in the business.
3: They, they do say that. Don't which, they? which business is that? In, in the podcasting business. Is oh, it... I thought you meant in the Portaloop business. <laughs> do they not say in the can? <laughs> yeah, I think they do. Really? Yeah. It's probably a bit. I mean, my children say to me all the time, "People don't say that anymore."
4: I use an expression that they used two months ago, and they say, "People don't say that anymore."
3: Can you give an example of you using a young person's expression? Trying to well, behave?
4: they have this expression which it was which was briefly popular, which is to say that's really obvious which is Narden. Narden. Yeah.
3: Is that like now then? What is what is that? Well, I don't know. It was Narden. like one of one. What's of, the etymology.
4: What, I don't know, but it's like became popular in their school playground. It's like, you know, well, that's so bleeding obvious. Ah. So it's sort of, you know, oh, it's a bit cold. Yeah. Narden.
3: Have you noticed any correlation between you attempting to use <laughs> these phrases and them, them not being in fashion anymore? Now that you mention it, Jeff, they seem to coincide. Yeah, well, yeah, the minute I, I
4: use them, and they say to me rather contemptuously, "People don't say that anymore." Well, I was like, "Well, they did say
3: it last week." Yeah. And the sort of trend non-setter, I have to say that the it's, trendender. It's coming as a surprise to me because what i I never hear you dropping any of these phrases into your into the podcast or into your parliamentary speeches. But I'd love love to hear a bit more of that. Okay. Yeah. Is that a challenge for 2023? Yeah, try, maybe try Narden next time you're doing an urgent question.
4: Yeah. Okay, I'll I'll bear that in mind. <laughs> well, we, we're we really starting with a great conversation, and that is a conversation with Adrian Buller and Matthew Lawrence, who've written a book called Owning the Future, Power and Property in an Age of Crisis. So we're starting with a, a really kind of tough and interesting area. Of oh, something. yeah, not messing about. We're well, not
3: easing our way into we're 2023. We're not easing our right? way. we're
4: we we're, blinking. We're, yeah, exactly. We're coming in as we... As grasping we Grasping the nettle, as, the bull by the horns. Exactly, as we mean to go on. And basically, uh, their book is about the role of ownership in our society, how we think about how we create a better world, what we do about the concentration of power, concentration of wealth, all of those issues. They're two really smart people. And it's a really, really interesting uh, conversation and a really widely admired book so um looking forward to it
0: reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd
4: it's very good to have the chance to talk to you and i feel i owe you a pre-christmas apology <laughs> to do with coatgate oh yes so matt runs this think tank called commonwealth and this is i'm afraid part of the pantheon of sort of ed stories which is I thought I I came to his party. I had a babysitter who I need to get back for, and I but then I couldn't find my coat, and I spent a long time trying to find my coat. I, I uh, think it's uh, it wasn't just you.
5: I think you, me,
4: and a day. number of other party yeah. guests. I feel like I I feel like I nearly ruined your party with the story of my lost coat. Anyway, I then left the party, texted the babysitter saying I was on my way home in a cab, and the babysitter said, oh, that was a nice shacket you had. And indeed, I had forgotten which coat I had brought to the party. Such a good party, you forget your own coat. It was such a good party. So I then came back to the party and retrieved my coat. It
5: was a pleasure to have you and, you know, that you returned safely with your jacket is the main thing.
4: That's very diplomatic. Now, before we get into the book, we've known each other for about, what, seven years? Yeah, about that. I sort of emailed you out of the blue, having read something that you'd written. And you thought I was a fake account. Yeah, I, almost,
5: I almost put it in the spam box.
4: I was a humble backbencher, but you nearly put me in the spam box. Adrian, how did you get into thinking about sort of progressive politics? What's your sort of background?
2: I mean, I think maybe a lot of people, especially sort of in my sort of age bracket, might feel this way, but it feels a bit like the world that we have grown up in and are currently living in is like so extreme in many ways that you sort of have, at least I felt no choice but to kind of be politically engaged and involved and to try and kind of make better some of the things around us on a particular personal level. I grew up in British Columbia in the west coast of Canada. And so my kind of first love politically, I guess, would be sort of climate and environmental issues. And you know, I grew up with this strange coal face of some of the most kind of beautiful, pristine, dramatic natural environments in the world, as well as pretty extreme sort of extraction of resources, forestry, mining, fossil fuels, etc. And really like that juxtaposition being quite an informative part of my my politics growing up, as well as the fact that, you know, Vancouver, not, not unlike London or much of the UK, is really marked by like extreme inequalities in wealth. All of that kind of really informs, I guess, what I am most passionate about now in my work.
5: Matt? So I think a um, professional background used to work at IPPR, which is a major progressive thinking in the UK, and in that role, in particular, working on the Commission on Economic Justice, had worked in and around questions of ownership, governance and voice within institutions. And through that, had really begun to sort of have this clarifying sense that unless you transform ownership and governance, you can't really transform the overarching design and operation of the economy. And that kind of insight, I suppose, drove both, you know, the setting up of Commonwealth and then also, you know, the origin of the book.
4: What about your sort of origin story? You started with the IPPR. What, before that, you, where did you grow up? How did you get in, interested in progressive politics?
5: Yeah, no, I mean, so I think you can't really tell it from the accent anymore. But my dad's of the family from South Africa and still, still live there and actually used to live there many, many years ago before moving to the UK. And for anyone who's been to South Africa, or indeed anyone who's, you know, got a sense of South Africa, will know that questions of ownership, land ownership in particular, are fundamental. And you can really see how those inequalities, those like intensely racialized inequalities of ownership and power, kind of completely shape and disfigure this otherwise, you know, intensely interesting, contested society. And then, of course, those same dynamics also operate in the UK. So it was interesting, those questions in how they operate in the UK and the sort of inequalities they generate. Interesting.
4: And so as you've already mentioned, at the heart of this book is this idea of ownership and you know how we need to change who owns what, who benefits from owning things. Can you say something about what's wrong with the current situation that we have?
5: Sure. So, you know, right now listeners will be maybe reading about what's ahead in the new year. And They'll be confronted with a blizzard of things. It might be the housing crisis. It might be a crisis in social care. It might be the stark divide between returns going to shareholders versus workers whose wages are being squeezed. It might be the power of big tech and their control of big data versus the relative powerlessness of people on these platforms. And in each of these, there is a golden thread running through it, which is who owns the assets, who controls them, who gets a say in shaping them. And so beneath these overlapping emergencies that we're seeing, whether it's economic, social or environmental, we can see actually the structuring force, the way that ownership shapes our society is kind of the lock key for both understanding the challenges confronting us and the sort of very everyday concerns, whether it's, you know, exploding costs of childcare, exploding costs of adult social care, the stark divide between renters and homeowners you know people being pressured at work you can really see how asset ownership shapes the winners and losers of the economy but also how it could be a tool as an institution that if we reimagined it we could begin to address some of those challenges in an inclusive and democratic direction
4: tell us a little bit about the history of this because you know i think people will know about the privatizations of the 1980s and so on. But was ownership more part of the debate before? Has that changed over time?
5: Absolutely. So I think ownership is kind of fundamental to the emergence of capitalism, if we're going back into sort of, you know, sort of deep history. What was distinct about it was that the majority of people suddenly lost ownership claims, became propertyless. So, you know, peasants suddenly lacked access to the commons to graze their cow. And they had to sell their labour as wages. And that set in train this dynamic where suddenly you had a world in which, you know, peasants could graze their cows and things weren't transformed into private property, into a world of the propertied minority, those who owned sort of the means of production, sort of the things we need to produce our world, and a majority which didn't. And from that end motion, a whole dynamic, you know, the capitalist dynamic of growth, but inequality, of power, but concentration, that really shaped the Industrial Revolution, shaped the 20th century. And of course, out of that grew an argument that actually – The public should have a stake, particularly of the things that shape our everyday lives. So whether that's health systems, transport systems, energy systems, there was a broad movement in the 20th century to say something, you know, things that are in service to the public should be held in public hands. And then, of course, you saw in the sort of, as you say, politically, that was a big demand in the 50s and 60s. But then you saw from the right of politics, Margaret Thatcher's government in particular, I guess, is iconic for this a sort of counter-revolution that said actually we should privatise and transform public wealth into private wealth. And that then really has set the trajectory for most of the last 30 years. But I think what's really interesting is if you look across the world in the last 10 to 15 years, there's countless examples from municipal water companies and for example, Paris, to public energy companies, for example, in many of the Scandinavian countries that are leading the way in terms of renewable energy production, to new forms of public provision of care, housing, you name it, really. Across the world, there's been a rebirth, in a way, of new and democratic forms of ownership at multiple scales that respond to the emergencies emerging from the current privatised and concentrated forms of ownership we see. And we're going to come on some of the detail of the book in a minute. But just at
4: the higher level, it's not presumably just about state versus private ownership, is it? you might be thinking about employee ownership or
5: cooperative ownership. I mean, in other words, it's not, it's not just a binary choice, is it? No, exactly. What we argue for is a much more pluralistic landscape. So you have social enterprise operating in communities. You have employee-owned and cooperative businesses. You have corporate forms that are fundamentally more democratic, both in their governance, but also in how they're owned. And of course, yes, you do have 21st centuries of democratic public ownership, that provide the access to the goods and services we all need to thrive and live well. Some of this book will
4: read as being very, very far away from being remotely realisable. Other parts of it will seem more practical. I mean, talk to us about the theory of change behind the
2: book. Yeah, I guess I'll start with like the theoretical approach, I guess, to the theory of change in the book. Um, and we sort of lean on the work of Rosa Luxemburg, who was with the scholar and an activist um, and an icon of her time. Um, And she talks about, I guess, the balance that needs to be struck between kind of radicalism and radicalism being sort of the reasonable response to extreme conditions that we inhabit, but the kind of immediate urgency of of reforms often to alleviate, you know, very near-term suffering that people are feeling, you know, in the here and now, whether it's the housing crisis, climate crisis, surging costs in, in sort of pharmaceuticals and vaccines, etc. But I think what we sort of focus on is how you can appropriately bring small near-term reforms that are often really important, as I said, to kind of alleviate short-term suffering up to a bigger transformative picture. And so basically always wanting to make sure that the sort of smaller reforms and policy tweaks that we're advocating for are deliberately linked up very explicitly to that more transformative vision and that they act sort of in service of rather than kind of counter to that larger transformation as well as often you know ideally they would be kind of prefigurative of a much more transformational change
5: I think absolutely like you know it's it's like that sort of Hemingway line of like you know how did you go bankrupt like you know, slowly, slowly, and then all at once. We argue there's sort of a a twin track of change. Change is both cumulative, it is about the steady building up of alternative, but it's also about moments of rupture, about when history leaps forwards in which transformations that might have seemed impossible suddenly are brought to life and emerge on the stage of history.
2: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
4: Let's talk about some sort of practical areas that this analysis might apply to.
5: Talk to us about housing, for example, and how you think about that. Housing is fundamental to the asset economy, this idea of an economy in which we have geared our policies – towards the interests of asset owners over non-asset owners. What we argue for both in housing but in the book as a whole is a world not in which everyone necessarily owns everything, not in which you know that's the only goal. The goal in a way is sometimes to say we should all be able to live well regardless of what we own. And so in housing, yes, of course, lots of people will want to own their home, have that security. But what we say is that we need to move from a world in which home ownership And the ownership of housing is such a critical dividing line and amplifier of inequality to a world in which everyone has a secure, decent, affordable home, regardless of whether they own their own home. And so that's a fundamental shift from trying to sort of gear everything around home ownership to saying what we really care is about making sure everyone has a decent home. And then from that flows quite different, I guess, policies, potentially political coalitions. But really, at the core of it is about thinking about what are needs that need to be met, rather than how do we organise the economy to maximise returns to asset owners. And so that might mean, for example, lots more social housing? Exactly. So it might mean a mix of things. It might mean... More rights for renters? Exactly. Those two would be really sort of, I guess, core to that. It would be saying, how do we expand social housing, which you know is slowly ticking up after long decades of you know, politically driven decline. And so that would be one way. Another way would be much stronger rights for um, private renters, as you say. And then it may well be the provision of affordable housing for owners and first-time buyers to get on the ladder, but at of more affordable rates in which a home is a home, not a asset to go up by 10% each year.
4: And I think this rather exposes something interesting, doesn't it? Which is we think of ownership as a very binary thing, but both in relation to housing, for example, and the corporation, it's sort of what rights does ownership confer? So giving rights to renters means that owning a home doesn't sort of give you the right to do anything <laughs>
5: to somebody who's renting your home, for example. Absolutely. So I guess there's a sort of preconceived popular notion of ownership being, you know, very specific set of rights. that are kind of you know written in stone, they never change. But actually ownership, which is quite a slippery concept, is in some ways better conceived of as a sort of bundle of rights that can kind of be shifted, changed, and malleable. And so you're kind of reimagining the power of ownership through reimagining who has rights in that situation. And then if you expand that out to the corporation, and the corporation is the fundamental institution of our economy, it fundamentally shapes what we produce, what we invest in, how work is organized. The key thing with this is, the rights around ownership, so the rights that shareholders have, for example, the rights that the corporation as a separate as a legal entity in its own right, you know, shareholders don't own the corporation, the corporation is its own thing. All of these rights, these are ultimately not just sort of, oh, that's just what they are, you know, shareholding always has these rights. This is what this is just how ownership is. Ownership is always political in origin. So the rights that owners have, whether it's the corporation or housing are always political, they're socially made, and socially constructed. That does mean we have the potential to reimagine those rights in more democratic and inclusive directions. Talk to us about technology.
4: Elon Musk is much in the news for his ownership of Twitter and all of the implications that has. You talk about technology in the book. If you're thinking about concentrations of private ownership, and one of the things that I take from your book is Anxiety about unaccountable concentrations of private ownership,
5: technology companies are obviously a big, big part of this. Absolutely. So, Elon Musk is a good example of the power you get when you concentrate ownership and control. People who have been on Twitter, they will have seen the changes he's been able to make, the disruption he's been able to make, purely just because he owns shares. He owns a majority of shares in that company. And I think that should give us pause to think, well, why on earth? Should he be able to have that much power? It's not like he bought it and gave the money to the company to invest. He just bought some shares on a traded secondary market, like on the stock market. So that the Musk example points to the sort of extraordinary power that we vest in share ownership if you have a majority of shares. What we say in the book and what we argue for is this idea that technology has extraordinary potential we are seeing extraordinary shifts in collective intelligence in you know advances in medicine in a whole suite of areas that is really in some ways has the potential to transform life but too often that potential is kind of held back because of concentration because of what is the motive behind the investment in new technologies and too often it is in technologies to Squeeze every last drop of effort out of a Amazon, you know, warehouse worker. Too often, it's in things that might be helpful, but aren't actually life-saving. Too often, it's in you know ways of adding value to shareholders, not lifting from ordinary people the drudgery of tasks that maybe could be abolished if we designed technologies to suit human needs rather than to suit shareholder maximisation. And, and what do we do about that, then? Because it, fe- I mean, this
4: feels both. You know, your Elon Musk example is both powerful, but also it feels in a sense the most difficult to take on. Elon Musk seems to have pretty, you know, unchecked power over Twitter. It sort of feels quite a long way from any kind of even
5: conversation about what accountability looks like. So I think we always need to remember that Elon Musk and Twitter, you know, Facebook, any of these, any of these concentrations of power, their power is ultimately not their own, so to speak how it operates, the way it operates, the powers it has, they are socially granted. So you can imagine a world in which we can reimagine the rights corporations have, who has power within the corporation, which would itself begin to change, challenge and reshape the types of unaccountable power you currently see operating.
4: Let's talk about public services briefly, because in some ways, the NHS is an advert for some of the things that you're talking about, isn't it? you'd you'd see it as a prime example of different ownership structures and conventional private ownership structures. When it first came into being before that, people thought it just can't possibly happen. Say a bit about public services and more widely in your vision.
2: I think one of the important things to say is that a key argument in our book is for kind of a plurality of forms of ownership and kind of models. And so the NHS and sort of state-level public ownership is one model that in in many instances we would consider, you know, really ideal and and the most appropriate and the most effective way to deliver the things that people need to survive and, you know, participate in society. There isn't really justification for there to be, you know, markets in those spaces. There is a lot of appetite and, you know, polling evidence really backs this up that people have an appetite for public services where it just is illogical for these to be sort of governed and organized in the interests of sort of private profit. And so we think that depending on the need, um, that's sort of the point where you should start to decide what kind of ownership model is appropriate. But certainly, you know, the the rightful kind of protective instincts that I think British people and Canadians as a Canadian have towards public health care um, reflects, I think, this intuitive understanding that most people have that, you know, there are many instances in which, you know, private interests simply can't be reconciled with what is fundamentally sort of a public and social good. So there's a basis to start from, I guess.
5: <laughs> Matt, what would you like to add? So a core to our vision is this idea of decommodification, which is a fancy term for essentially saying, how do we provide access to the things people need to live well, life's essentials, Without having to pay for them or without having to pay exorbitant amounts. Exactly. exactly. And so one of the sort of you know, great moments of forward movement in British political history, but in some ways, I think beyond that of, of global importance, was the creation of the NHS as the idea that whatever your income, whatever your background, whatever your location in society, you would have access to decent, secure, free point of use provision of healthcare. And that's a fundamental leap forwards in the dignity and sort of humaneness of any society. So I think in terms of public services, that idea of democratic public ownership, so it should have voice for users, have voice for sort of people who work in the system, have voice for the public at large. But public ownership is fundamental to it. And I think one thing on that change point, I think if, for example, in 1945, the Labour government said, well, what we're going to do is maybe create a few public cooperatives here, or we're going to take a couple of the municipal health boards into public ownership but leave the private system, it would have not really worked and wouldn't have built the institution that you know the British public know and love. And so I think the lesson from there is when you do have those historic moments of change, really take advantage and, and go big, as someone might say. You know, Go big, and that's how you lock in change.
4: What would you say to somebody who said, this is all very well, but you very much underestimate the power of private ownership, and what sort of profit maximizing firms have done can do for the country, the technology advances, the other things. In other words, you you know, your book is about the benefits of alternative forms of ownership to private ownership. But what about private ownership itself? What do you recognize its benefits?
5: Private ownership obviously is, you know, in a pluralistic system, would have a you know, really important role, but it would be a role on different terms. So it would be on a different terms in which the people who work in companies that are privately owned would have much greater stake and a say in it. So that would be changing the rules, maybe giving them new collective ownership stakes. You know, so, yes, you'd still have private ownership and, yes, you'd still have, you know, the incentive structures and the benefits that that can unlock, but on fundamentally different terms. And on terms that I think the broad majority of people would win under, we need to be attentive politically to how we can grow that, grow new forms of enterprise, grow new forms of democratic private ownership. What's your evidence that
4: people are dissatisfied? In other words, how does this speak to the current sort of you know environment in which we operate and, and what people believe about the country?
5: Yeah, so I think... If you look at the real political flashpoints right now, whether it's the cost of living crisis, energy bills, which are obviously part of that, but also in their own right, a crisis, whether you look at the real squeeze on sort of real wages, um, both in the public and the private sector, and the sort of wave of strikes, which are a symptom, not a cause of, of, sort of you know, problems, all of these are in some ways, again, related to how ownership structures the economy. Who is first in line in terms of who benefits in the economy? And so, you know, you might not necessarily say, hey, hey, you there in the street, this is all about ownership. But what you would say is like the problems that you're caring about, the fact that your bus fares have surged, the fact that you're not getting a wage that's keeping up with the cost of living, the fact that the, you know, your grand's sort of adult social care seems to be going through the roof now that the private equity company has taken over. You can go on and on and on and think through that this won't be a silver bullet, but it is a fundamental structuring force to the economy. That if we really do want to tackle these problems, not in a sort of sticking plaster way, although right now this country needs sticking plaster, if we want to do it in a serious, durable way that unlocks the potential that ordinary people have, ordinary communities have, we need to reimagine ownership and we need to not just to redistribute it, but that reimagination to rethink a more pluralistic, democratic and inventive and inclusive form of ownership to think through how we own the world in common.
4: When it comes to urgency, there's nothing more urgent than the climate crisis. How do these arguments about ownership feed into that?
2: I think one aspect of ownership that's really important in in the climate crisis is that you know this is fundamentally a crisis based on incredibly unjust and indefensible allocations of the incredible kind of resources and bounty um, and commons um, that the world offers to us. And it's directly related to sort of the question of inequality, both within and between countries that in my mind is sort of at the heart of climate and ecological crisis. And what's interesting there is that you know, inequality and the reproduction of it is kind of inherent to, to capitalism. And capitalism is fundamentally disinterested in questions around sort of equality or justice. And so in response to escalating climate ecological crisis, capitalist responses have been new forms of private ownership and sort of market-based um, governance and control. And and the carbon offset market for me is a really good example of that, um, where instead of thinking about how can we better distribute demand for carbon emissions. The response instead has been, you know, keep emitting, don't change those behaviors. Instead, you know, we'll allow those who can afford it to buy credits to entitle them to continue emitting. But fundamentally, I think the problem that we argue um, is inherent to us in the book is that it is, again, a new form for sort of a minority of the world's population to kind of Enclose rights to kind of the atmosphere, to land, and that is basically using the same kind of logics that are driving this crisis in the first place to try and resolve it. And our argument is that sort of a, a fundamentally kind of self-defeating
5: approach. Yeah. So I think the climate crisis is inseparable from existing dominant forms of ownership. So if we think about it. You know, what it is in a way is the right of big oil of you know the energy giants to have exclusive claims on the earth, to say, this patch of land is mine, and I'm going to extract fossil fuels beneath it for profit, regardless of the consequences for the planet as a whole, for the communities around us. And so it's fundamentally bound up in the exclusive ownership claims. Sorry to interrupt, but leased by government. Oh, Yeah, exactly. Often, but then sort of the government is using its ownership of that land to generate rents from it. And so one way of thinking about this of climate crisis is to say, we need to reimagine how we organise those claims against the Earth in ways that are compatible with a 1.5 degree future. And so that might be saying, like, we're going to, instead of a world of exclusive ownership of fossil fuels, we're going to have a commons-based system of renewables. So renewable energy that, you know, comes ultimately from the, sort of the commons of the, you know, the sun and the waves and sort of the wind, to say this shouldn't be sort of, privately owned. These are sort of things that flow all around us And we all have a stake and a say in it, and we steward it for the Earth's advantage, and we're going to invest in it collectively to scale that, and we're going to make sure we get returns in that, rather than saying, right, well, this privately owned company, you know, in which shareholders are making a total killing off, literally killing the planet because of their exclusive ownership claims on the Earth, well, that's just the way things are. So I think it's fundamentally about ownership, and if we want to break free of that cycle of extractivism, extractivism in a double sense, extracting from the planet, but also extracting extraordinary profits, then we absolutely need to think about breaking that sort of operating code of private ownership and transitioning to a world in which we steward the Earth's resources for common benefit.
4: Last question. The book is called Owning the Future. Are you, do you tend to be an optimist, a pessimist, a use sort of a glass half full, or a glass half empty?
2: Um, Good question. I tend to, you know, I draw on the the wisdom of others here. Um, There's a really great sort of Mike Davis quote, sort of late great uh, Mike Davis about, you know, fight with hope, fight without hope. I don't care. You know, just make sure you're fighting. (laughs) Um, And sometimes I feel that is really, really resonant. Although I think my politics tend to actually lean towards the idea that, you know, true radicalism is to make, Hope possible rather than despair convincing. And that's um, Raymond Williams. And that is kind of what I tend to keep in mind, which is, you know, it's not easy to be optimistic, um, particularly when, you know, confronted every day with the kind of um, piling up of crises that, that we're facing. But that it is sort of, again, like a daily kind of practice to undertake. And that is a true form of radicalism, you know, in the face of all of this to to make hope possible. Um, And that maybe is a bit of a twee way of saying that I tend to err on the side of optimism, but not because I'm innately optimistic, but because I choose deliberately to be an optimist.
5: (laughs) Matt? I'm very much um, an optimist in the sense that the world, you know, with all its beauty, but all its injustice is built by us. And therefore, if we can mobilize the power, we have the capacity to reimagine it and reimagine it on terms of justice and democracy. So I think you've got to be an optimist while being you know, aware of the challenges and the scale of the challenges we face. Okay, Adrian, Matt,
4: we're really grateful to you for joining us. The book is Owning the Future, Power and Property in an Age of Crisis. I promise to be more careful with my coat at next year's Christmas party, if you'll invite me. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure
5: to be on. Thank you very much.
2: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.